Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trusida from NHS Somerset, and I'm a GP by background, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Sarah Coop. I'm a former GP and a medical educator and coach. And we're really pleased to welcome a third GP today, Dr. Damien Kemi. Hello. Uh, I was a GP for many years, and I retired five years ago. My other work was as a medical educationalist, and particularly I was involved in helping people to learn consulting skills. So I did this with GPs who had run into difficulties. I also did this a lot with uh, GP registrars. And increasingly, I was doing workshops for GP trainers in order to discuss with them techniques that they could use to help their registrars develop and improve their consulting skills. Thank you so much, Damien, for that and for joining us for a second time. And we're going to talk about effective consulting, part two. And before we do, um, I was lucky enough to to meet you earlier this year in, in Cornwall. Uh, and you held 150 of us, maybe 200 of us, spellbound for a couple of hours of a teaching session. And that's a pretty thing, great thing to do. And there's loads of wonderful gems of wisdom on your website, which is damiankenny.co.uk, damiankenny.co.uk. So we're just so pleased that you've been able to share this resource with us and all your wisdom. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, the, the website started as putting on some handouts from workshops. People asked me, could they have them and could they have access to them? And so it just built up from there. It was very, very small. It's still quite small, and it just has a series of little handouts on certain aspects of consulting uh, to give some people ideas. Yeah. That's just great. And I, I was looking at your website earlier and there was something that caught my eye, which was uh, a section which is entitled List of Phrases When Consulting. Uh, and um, this podcast today is aimed at everybody, but we particularly thought it might be useful for for those of us who consult others, for practitioners of many disciplines who are trying to work with patients in order to find the best way forwards. And, and it seemed like a list of phrases when consulting might be rather interesting. Uh, well, this one came about because I worked with certain registrars who said that when they get to a particular point in the consultation, they don't really know what to say. So we talked about some phrases that might be helpful and then tried them out. Over the years, I added to this gradually. And actually, a lot of those phrases are not ones that I use myself, but I pinched them from other colleagues. And I wanted to get several possible phrases and sentences, questions that might be useful for each part of the consultation. And the way I've used this is to invite someone who's learning just to try them out, try out one or two that they fancy. If there's one they like, carry on using it. But it's really a way of helping them to find their own phrase and any that they don't like, just ignore. Damien, can I just ask a question? You said that um, a list of phrases that you put together because registrars or doctors, GPs in training said they got stuck in consultations. Just give us an idea of the sorts of points in consultations that people might find they get a little bit stuck and therefore this list of phrases has been useful. What kind of points? Well, for example, they might get stuck with how to explain something 
or they might get stuck with safety netting and find that that, that one is one which many people have found difficult uh, because they don't want to test the patient, like, what do you understand from today? It feels a little bit more of a test. So I wanted to help develop a few phrases which just gave a more inviting way of discussing with patients. Um, but it's it really is just a start for people to start exploring different ways of doing things, different ways of opening the consultation instead of just saying, what's the problem or how can I help? A variety of ways. And I thought, if we only have one way of doing a particular job, then we'll always use it. And quite often it'll be fine. But there are many patients or situations where that won't work. So if we develop a range of different uh, phrases, then we could choose what we think might be the most useful now and, and be a bit more flexible. Perfect. So um, to use a phrase from the sound of music, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So thinking about the start of a consultation, Damien. Uh, well, at the very start, um, my own particular favourite is to really say nothing, just to open with an opening silence and Anyone who's tried this has found how very useful it is because it allows the patient to say whatever they want. You're not constraining them. You're not. If you use a phrase like, for example, um, "What's the problem?" or "How can I help you?" These are these are common. It sort of forces the patient into either having a symptom or um, trying to come up with a solution before you've even talked about the problem. Whereas if you just say something like, oh, hello, Mr. Smith, do come in, have a seat, and then you just look at them in an expectant, warm, uh, encouraging way, nodding, they will just start talking. And they will say what they want to, what's on their mind, rather than having to find a, um, an excuse for coming in. So that, that's where I started, really. So... Uh, in a given day, you might have to have once or twice the patient won't start talking and you have to say something. So I usually said something like, what would you like to talk about today? Or what shall we discuss today? Something like that. Very open. Yeah, that's helpful, Damien. And I remember from the first podcast we did with you, you talked about that then, um, just staying silent. And so I wonder how many listeners who have listened to that episode have tried that out and how that felt. Often it can feel a little bit uncomfortable initially because it's different, isn't it, to usual the usual question. And I really think it's interesting how you've said just having different phrases to use because we do tend to fall into the same kind of questioning techniques don't we and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that but there's something about having that variety and flexibility of our questions because if someone said to you and asked you a question David like what's the purpose of the questions in a consultation why is it important to think about this in terms of you know useful phrases what's the purpose of of good questioning what would you I say think the that the purpose is to have good communication. The doctor is attempting to find out what the issues are for the patient. Very often the patient knows, but sometimes the patient doesn't even know themselves what their real issue is. So the purpose of questions and 
all these techniques, because I, I try not to use so many questions, but questioning techniques, if you use that phrase, is to open the conversation so that what the issue is becomes open and the doctor and the patient can discuss and the doctor can really understand. I think that's what I'm really looking for. The doctor understands what the issues are, and then you can have a shared discussion as to where to go forwards. Uh, there may be a treatment, there may not. It may just be a sharing and a empathising, which might be what the patient actually wants on this particular occasion. So I think all the phrases and questioning techniques is all about getting a deeper understanding and a sharing together of what's going on. Yeah, that's helpful. And it'd be good to talk a little bit about the different areas that you said some doctors, especially in training, might get stuck. Just before we go on to that, do you have a metaphor for the consultations? Because I've heard doctors sometimes or other clinicians talk about having a metaphor for a consultation, such as maybe it's a bit like being a detective, you know, sort of looking for clues. I don't know. Do you have have something in mind? Um I haven't thought of it in that way. Um, no, I, I don't think I have used a metaphor in, in that sort of thing. I can see that a detective, yes, there's an element of that. If you are trying to work out a, a diagnosis, if the patient has a physical problem, which might be unusual, there may be an element there. Um, but I think that's relatively few of the consultations. Very often you're dealing with chronic disease, you know what the diagnosis is, and today you might be discussing a particular issue, a worry of the patient or a development. So it's not really detective, it's more trying to understand. So possibly different metaphors for different times. Um one of the things that can happen as a consultation is that there is a power differential. And as the professional, one often um, has more power than the patient who feels that they have less power. Um, and as somebody who's holding the power, it's really important to be open to the cues and to listen. And listening is not something that all of us necessarily have learnt to do. Some of us have grown up in families where we competitively listen. That is to say, we're waiting for airtime. Have you got any thoughts on on how to how to actively listen and help that process? There is a list of points on the website called active listening. I think it is, or something right. along those lines. Yes. Um, let me just hear some ideas about active listening. Yes. So there is a, a, a sort of handout there with a number of ideas, and it covers positive aspects like being quiet, facilitating, for example, saying, mm, go on, right, and so on, uh, feeding back cues and paraphrasing. So there are some of the positive ideas for active listening. And it also discusses some blocks to active listening, things that commonly happen, such as what Andrew's just said. Many people don't listen. They just wait for a gap in the other person's words and then jump in and they haven't actually heard the last few things that the patient has said. That's very common. So there's a few ideas there about how to avoid things like that. Mm, that's helpful, Damien. So let's think about then some of these um, possible phrases for those particular areas that people might get stuck. So <coughs> one of them was around how to explain things well. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that. Well, explaining... Uh, is is something which many 
trainees find quite difficult because what I've observed very commonly is that when you get onto a diagnosis and then the doctor wants to explain it, they say, oh, I know about this disease, and they just tell the patient everything that the doctor knows about that disease uh, at great length sometimes. And so <clears throat> that's very often not helpful to the patient. So one of the ways is to try and identify what the patient wants to know. Do they want to know what the cause is? Do they want to know, is it catching? Um, whatever. There'll be very different ways. And instead of regurgitating the entire page or a section of chapter that the doctor knows and is stored in, in their head, they select just the small few areas that the patient wants to know. Of course, you can start by saying, what is it you'd like to know about this disease? Yeah, that's one way of doing it. You can also refer back to the first half of the consultation when you were identifying the patient's ideas, concerns, expectations, and refer back to that later when explaining to say, you were interested in such and such. Well, in your case, uh, and then you go on to explain. So there, there's some of the ways. And listening by looking, if you are explaining and looking at the patient, you will see the patient if their face glazes over, if they obviously look as if they don't understand. And if you say things in short bursts, some people use the phrase chunk and check, uh, tell a very small amount of information, see whether the patient has absorbed it, do they understand, watch their body language, are they nodding, are they engaged, and then pause, and they will ask a question asking you something else about this, this disease, and then you can just go always focused on what the patient is wanting to know. Of course, sometimes you have to give some doctor-specific things uh, that the patient might not know about. So it's a balance, but predominantly, I think it's listening and sharing appropriately rather than everything. Yeah, that really resonates with a lot of the communication skills teaching that I do as well, because, yeah, we all have a spiel, don't we, that if we pressed a button, we could just, like I say, recite and regurgitate that chapter. And, and, and it has its place. However, people don't take away very much of, often of that spiel because it's more of a lecture, isn't it? Whereas I guess what we're wanting to do is that shared, more of a tutorial kind of a, a kind of concept where you're asking the person, the patient, you know, what is it you already know about this? Their starting point, what do they already know? What do they want to know? And then the information that you give as the clinician is much more tailored to their specific questions. I think the, the chunk and check is a really helpful concept, isn't it? It's like a piece, like a bite-sized piece of information allow them to digest it and swallow it and just see how that's landed, I guess, is helpful. Yes. So that's really useful. Uh, another thing relevant to this is the order in which the doctor explains can be crucial to how much the patient will listen. So if I give an example, which is one I use in the workshops, um, I think every GP has had a patient or many patients who say, I've got a headache and I'm worried it's a brain tumour. This is a very common scenario. So if the doctor has done a thorough examination and the diagnosis is very clear that it's not a headache, sorry, it's not a brain tumour, it may be a migraine, it may be sinus headache, whatever, but it's, it's clear and the doctor is correct. Now, if the doctor starts the explanation like this, 
the diagnosis here is migraine because, and then goes on to explain, if the patient still thinks that they have a brain tumour, they have now stopped listening. And all they're doing is waiting for the doctor to stop talking to say, oh, but couldn't it be a brain tumour? How do you know? And so on. So they stop listening. So I refer to that method of explaining as stating the diagnosis and then justifying it. Now, if we take a different way of doing it, we can do we can do uh, expounding all the issues leading to a conclusion. So it might be something like this. You've had a headache for uh, a week. It's always on one side. You, you've been getting um, or you've been getting several headaches. You get some flashing lights and then the headache. Uh, you were worried it was a brain tumour. And uh, I've done a very careful examination, including your pulse, blood pressure, and I've looked in the back of your eyes and I've done a thorough assessment. And so your headache is very typical of a migraine. And I don't find any evidence of a tumour. So you can see that what I did there was just lead through all the things, the history, the examination, included the patient's concern. Now, at the very least, the patient will be listening all the way through that. And sometimes they will even jump in at the end and say, oh, so it's a migraine then, before you even get a chance to say it, because you've led them through the, the process of how you have come to that conclusion. So I found that the word order uh, makes a big difference. I do like that. And thinking about the doctor being detective, but the patient also putting things together. I, I remember a patient of mine who was a, a, an eminent barrister. And uh, I said, I said, I was asking him a question once one day about how I should explain something. He said, uh, he didn't tell me how to explain it. He said, uh, members of the jury, I'd like you please to consider item A. Uh, now, members of the jury, can we turn our attention to fact B? Members of the jury, would you like to consider item C and yes. so and so on? Absolutely. Exactly. There's a very clear parallel there, and you keep the listener in the, in this case in our in our situation the patient keep them engaged by listening to you, and again always watching their body language. Have they heard something that they disagree with? If you've said something, and they might say, "Oh, I didn't tell you that," or whatever but you're watching them to see that they are nodding and they're engaged with you and they follow you all the way to the end and then the conclusion becomes fairly straightforward thank you that's really helpful damien you've just mentioned the words body language and we're talking about communication and communication skills how much of a communication is words and how much is is not words as it were and What's well, there's been various studies on this sort of thing. Um, without getting too bogged down in the actual percentages, it's thought that a, a relatively small amount of communication is the actual words, so somewhere around 15 20%, something of that order. And quite a lot more, uh, something like 30% or so, is this tone, tone of voice, uh, speed, pitch, these kind of uh, different aspects to the voice, which are not words. And then the, the visual cues and other cues are, are somewhere around half of communication. So if people say words which are 
completely at odds with their body language. Uh, for example, a patient says, I feel very well <laughs> in a very negative, depressing kind of way. Uh, we will all trust the body language rather than the words. And if I, as a consultant, am looking at the computer screen and not looking at the patient, I'm probably missing quite a lot of the tone of the voice because I'm not, I may not be concentrating. Yes. I may think I can multitask, but personally I can't. And I'm missing yes. all the visual clues. Yes, yes. Hmm. Thank you. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, on that particular point, Andrew, um, you said you, you might think you can multitask. Many people believe they can, but the evidence is we can't. You simply cannot do it. If you are looking at the computer while the patient is talking, then you are simply not listening to the patient. You may hear a few words and get a few bits of data, but you won't really understand it. And often can miss really important cues as well. Can't That's the challenge. You, you miss a lot of cues. And so... One of the elements there is sometimes uh, you might want to refer to something on, on the computer. You might want to look up a test result or read a consultant's letter. So sometimes doctors let the patient carry on talking whilst they look at the letter or the result. And that doesn't work. Um, the doctor misses the cues. The patient feels excluded. So a technique which works very well for everyone is to say, oh, we need to look up this result, shall we look together? And then turn the screen so that the patient and the doctor can both see it and then point it out and say, oh, yes, there it is, that's the number, and that means it's raised or it's lowered, whatever. Or, or shall we read what the consultant had to say and then get the letter and read it together? And this way you're engaged together. It's actually quicker and you're doing something in a shared way. So I find that works very well. And you mentioned you mentioned body language. Of course, when we say body language, we often think of the visual cues. But these days, many doctors and um, other health workers consult over the telephone. And so we don't have the visual cues, but we do have the tone of voice, the pace, the, the rhythm. And particularly if we know a patient already, we will hear if they are talking in a different way to their normal way. And certainly I've had the example of a, a mother phoning about a child. And as soon as she started talking, I knew this child was ill, not because of any words. She hadn't actually told me, but the kind of panic in her voice, which was totally out of character for this person. So we can determine a lot of non-verbal from the tone, even on the telephone. And also it goes the other way. Uh, if a doctor is um, uh, very tired and slumped on the desk and talking, then the patient will hear that. If the doctor is browning the, the, on the telephone, the patient will hear it. If they're smiling, they will hear it. Uh, if they stand up to be active, then the patient will hear this too. So we, it goes both ways. And if the doctor isn't listening, the patient will hear that, or at least my mother always could when I was on the phone <laughs> to her. And she said, Andrew, you're not listening. And she always knew when I was doing something else. Yes, so, yes. Something that you wanted to bring up is it, that's important. 
Yeah, I just wanted to go back to um, the area of safety netting because, Damien, you mentioned that was an area that people sometimes get stuck. So just in the sort of five minutes we've got left, I know this is an area of quite um, sub- substantial risk, isn't it, if it's not done well. What's a few tips that you've got for the listeners on this? Um, many doctors are reluctant to simply ask the patient w- what they've learned or what we've decided because they perceive that the it's it's like a quiz or they're testing the patient. So for, for those doctors, one technique which works very well is to turn the test around back onto the doctor. So for example, saying something like, well, I've told you quite a bit of information there. Um, just so that I know that I've, I've told you well enough, could, could you just tell me the main points that you've got from me so you see the test is back on the doctor and rather than feeling you're testing the patient of course lots of patients are different some will want lots of information some little and so I think there are a number of phrases on the list that are on the website there people say when you get home what are you going to tell your partner that's that's one um and you could also use a very short one, depending on the patient. You could say, OK, so what's the plan? Um, and just keep it very light. And sometimes the patient will outline the plan without the doctor having to say anything. And then you can just say, yep, yeah, that's great. I think it's also it's always really helpful if the patient says something and they're not sure if they're right or not but the doctor thinks they are, to tell them, yes, I agree. Yes, that's right. Yes, I'm with you there. Something along those lines. Um, again, this you mentioned hierarchy earlier. This is one of the ways of getting rid of hierarchy by um, sharing and doing things together, um, using words like we um, and, and you rather than I, um, puts, puts the focus onto either the the patient with you or the sharing with we. That's really helpful, Damien. Just um, those people who like to look at a bit of research, the principle you were talking about then is the tell-back collaborative principle, isn't it, where the doctor really takes the responsibility for having explained things well. And there's a paper that was published in 2008 by Evelyn Kemp um, and other authors that's really helpful for other examples of phrases. So there's lots more we could talk about in terms of shared decision-making and more about the ideas, concerns and expectations, all of those aspects. But sadly, we're, we're running out of time. But just any final point from you, Damien, before I go to Andrew to ask for his takeaway takeaways from today? I think um, as a final point, I would say end with a positive statement. So uh, th- this comes into also safety netting, saying things like, um, I think you'll get better, but if you don't get better, come back. There's a lot of negativity there at the end. If you turn that around and say, if this doesn't settle quite quickly, I'm very happy to see you again. But I think these tablets will make you better quickly. So you see that's ending there on a very positive note. And it's disproportionately powerful the last thing we say to anybody has much more power than what we say in the middle of our uh, discourse. So I would say try and always end, no matter what you've been talking about, try and find some positive statement to end so that it's in the patient's ears as they're walking out. 
thank you. That's some great food for thought there. So just to ask Andrew, because you obviously listened to Damien when you were at the conference and you said that people were spellbound and having heard him talk again today, what have you taken away from this, Andrew, yourself? Um, well, a couple of metaphors. I saw David earlier on on the camera that your earpieces were in Dumble in a box called Dumbledore, and I think you've been sharing great <laughs> wisdom with us. And to to use a different metaphor, I think your your advice helps all of us who consult bring some wonderful music to the consultation in a metaphorical way, rather than just being a dry informational one. So that's absolutely great, Damien. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.